This episode is brought to you in part by Thomas Nelson, publisher of I Want to Matter. Your life is too short and too precious to waste. Written and narrated by New York Times bestseller Kathy Lee Gifford. Available now everywhere you get audiobooks. You're listening to Seeing and Believing, a film and television podcast that searches for the sacred on screen. I'm Wade Bearden. And I'm Kevin McLenathan. And Wade, I have powdered up my bony cheekbones and donned a nice black and white fright wig because, what can I say, I'm feeling a little fashionable today. Wow. Well, Kevin, I I hope you're wearing your Dalmatian sweatshirt. I mean, that would really complete the ensemble. Yeah, I I gave that one away to, to Goodwill, sadly, so don't have it anymore. Well, at least somebody who's thrift shopping will have a chance to wear it. Listeners, today we review the new film from Craig Gillespie, the Cruella de Vil prequel, Disney's Cruella. Plus, of course, we've got listener feedback on our review of St. Maud. We thought that that might spur a little bit of conversation, and we're looking forward to it on episode 292 of Seeing and Believing. Anita, darling, my darling. Stella, it's been so long. You know, I kept staring at you at the party, and then it came to me. That's Estella from school. It's not Estella. That's the past. I'm Cruella. So you you go to parties, and you take pictures, and you print gossip. That's your job? Yes, well, not as fun as it sounds. Oh, it doesn't sound fun. It sounds useful. Oh. I'd like to start my own label. Why don't we work together to create some buzz for this old rag that you continually fill with that old hag? Yes, listeners, we are here with episode 292 of Seeing and Believing. We're going to be talking about Cruella in just a bit. Kevin, we're going to jump in and we're going to give you some some feedback, listeners, from another listener. We're going to have a review. We're going to have recommendations today. But I have to open with a little story, Kevin. I haven't haven't talked to you about this, but we were kind of thinking about what we're going to review this week. We didn't have a chance to get to The Quiet Place Part 2, but I actually had a screener in Houston for that film, I could not make it. And I, I don't actually remember why I couldn't make it, but I, but I couldn't make it. And you know who showed up to that screening, Kevin? John Krasinski. Um, and I didn't make it. So we're just not even going to review it this week. We're not even going to think about it this week because that still hurts my heart. And and just like that, uh, a thousand seeing and believing listeners looked directly into a nearby camera and just sort of grimaced. So, you know, Wade, that's on you. It's on me. And, you know, I was thinking about going with Priscilla. We were, we were thinking about whether we could make it. And she was so upset So because he's one of her favorite actors. And, um, yeah, he, he surprised everybody. It doesn't usually happen like that at critic screenings, but I guess every once in a while – 
It does, and I, <laughs> I missed so, it. So this was this was an un, unannounced visit. He just yeah. it, the the screening was already canceled, and he just sort of happened to be in the neighborhood and decided to pop by. Yeah, give yeah. all the critics a thrill. Yeah, yeah. It was it was already scheduled, and he just showed up. He was doing. I think he was doing this kind of like secret tour, and he was showing up to these critic screenings. I think he did it in Austin too, and just surprising people, talking about the movie, promoting it. And I, I guess it was their way of kind of getting it back in front of audiences because they did so much marketing last year when the movie was supposed to come out. And uh, I guess maybe just doing it for PR. Oh, did, did he show up perhaps in costume as one of the <laughs> uh, the monsters from those movies? <laughs> he didn't, uh, sadly. But that would have been cool if he did and he showed up and everybody was like, this guy's, you know, who's in this costume? This is dumb. And then he pulled off the mask and he was like, would you have treated me different if you knew who I was? That's what's wrong with this world. That would have been a really teachable moment, Kevin. <laughs> <laughs> Truly a teachable moment. Speaking of teachable moments, Wade, we uh, had a listener write into us about our review of St. Maud. Uh, we, we kind of predicted when we did that review that that would be a film that uh, for listeners who had seen it, there would just be a, a lot of... A conversation that could be spurred around just because of the the spiritual subject matter and the fact that it is it's the sort of movie that really is kind of designed to be provocative in that area. So uh, I wasn't surprised, but I was really happy to see that a listener uh, named Jonathan from Central Texas wrote in with a pretty lengthy and thoughtful email about his thoughts on the film. He writes, Wade and Kevin was so glad you guys took the time to review St. Maud on the show this past week, but I was honestly a bit surprised it registered so flat for you on the spirituality front. I can't say I actually disagree with any of the critiques raised with regards to the technical merits of the film, but in the spirit of having a lively conversation, I thought I'd share what I personally found pretty compelling about this picture's vision of spiritual tragedy. For me, St. Maud seemed deliberately cagey about the specifics or particulars of Maud's faith, precisely because it wants to resist characterizing any particular stream of Christianity as being facilely evil. But I did get the distinct sense that this film wants to critique graceless Christianity. That is, whatever species of Christianity has taken hold of Maud has clearly made her beholden to a god whose promised salvation comes with some dreadful strings attached. And while Maud's less-than-clearly-explored trauma and colorful local past may be a catalyst for her sudden religious conversion, the film seems less interested in the specifics of her religiosity than in exploring how her faith practices never seem to quite deliver on the promises they offer. There's a lot of Martin Luther's tortured self-loathing here, sounds the grace he ultimately discovered in the Book of Romans, a lot of legalistic parlaying for divine favor, for some way to atone for a past that can't be undone, that ultimately never comes. So Jonathan goes on to say that the the real spiritual horror for him in that movie was its harrowing depiction of graceless religion and kind of what Martin Luther was kind of going through and being constantly tortured by <laughs> before he discovered the the wonder of grace. So I really like that that reading of it. I was glad to have Jonathan write in and explain at length what he found in that film. It was really great to hear his thoughts. Yeah, listeners. Uh, I really enjoy hearing feedback from all of you, and I enjoyed reading that email and, and just found it very thoughtful. And while I still I'm still not a fan of the movie, I can definitely see those those strings kind of making their way through the story. So yeah, definitely appreciate it. 
And listeners, you can always send us some thoughts at Pod on Twitter or seeingandbelievingcapc at gmail.com. Good letter. That was I, I like that, Kevin. That was a great letter. Yeah, it was really good. I, I would have loved to have actually read the whole thing out here, but you know, it was it was a little bit uh, lengthy, and we don't have the the time, unfortunately. But yeah, it's a really uh, lots of really great thoughts there from Jonathan, and like you, I I just love the, the the thoughtful feedback that our listeners come up with for us. So thanks again, Jonathan, for writing in. We really appreciated uh, reading your take on Saint Maud. Yes, definitely. We we spent too much time on the John Krasinski miss. And <laughs> didn't get to the I, entire letter. <laughs> I, I should repent in dust and ashes. A good thing there is grace in Christianity for me. So that I had to get my crack off about John Krasinski rather than reading the entirety of Jonathan's email. Oh, what a what a rogue and peasant slave am I, Wade. <laughs> well that's me, because this is this wasn't your story. Uh it wasn't <laughs> it wasn't your issue, just me working through my issues. Thanks a lot, Jonathan. We're gonna go ahead and jump into our review of Cruella, directed by Craig Gillespie of Itania and Lars and the Real Girl Fame. Cruella debuted this past weekend in theaters and on Disney Plus through their premium access. Here's the movie's official synopsis. Estella, played by Emma Stone, is a young and clever grifter who's determined to make a name for herself in the fashion world. She soon meets a pair of thieves who appreciate her appetite for mischief, and together they build a life for themselves on the streets of London. However, when Estella befriends fashion legend Baroness Von Hellman, played by Emma Thompson, she embraces her wicked side to become the revenge-bent Cruella. Kevin, as with many Disney adaptations and prequels, uh, we ask the question, does it actually matter that this film exists? Does the story warrant this movie being made, especially a film like this being made for something like $200 million? That is a lot of money. So my first question to get us started, do you think that it adds any thematic resonances to this already, I guess, beloved story, but not beloved character? Yeah, you know, it's it's funny you you take that angle right from the start because as I was watching this movie, I mean, it's it's easy to sort of, you know, tweak this film cheekily like, oh, the, you know, the 101 Dalmatians cinematic universe, like the 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 deep mythology of this originally just a Disney cartoon about there being just a lots of dogs and how that's kind of just that's pretty interesting inherently. Um, it's not the sort of movie that really needs that kind of extra ballast, I guess. And I th- think that the movie, if you come at it at in a sense of does it justify being this origin story for Cruella DeVille? No, of course not, because Cruella DeVille as a character doesn't really, she doesn't need a, a backstory in the same way that you don't really need to know the backstory of the wicked queen from snow white seven dwarves she's just that she's a villain and that's kind of that's enough for that particular story so i i kind of preface what i'm say with that saying that like this is 
Cruella is not a particularly interesting movie as an origin story for Cruella de Vil. As another kind of movie, which is sort of a heist slash revenge slash high fashion satire film, it's it's actually a, it, it's pretty fun in that mode. I think the I had the most fun with this film when I was just sort of enjoying the uh, the the basic pleasures of kind of a genre picture and the parts where it kind of felt the need to explain, okay, well, this is how Cruella DeVille came to be called Cruella DeVille. This is how she, you know, got her driving skills. This is how she, you know, developed a relationship with the breed of Dalmatian. Like those, who cares? Those things are less interesting and the movie would be completely better off without them. Not least because that would bring down the the runtime from two hours and 10 minutes to something less uh, ridiculous. But I think that the best way to approach Cruella is to just enjoy it basically on its own terms and do your best to forget that it actually has anything at all to do with that earlier film. Yeah. Well, it's funny because whenever I heard about this movie being made, my my one hope was, oh, well, Emma Stone's in it and she's she's great. And it looks like a movie she'll have a lot of fun being a part of. I, it, it just seems like it would be fun to play this character. And I'm sure she'll have a good time and there'll be some interesting scenes. And as I started watching the movie, it became quickly apparent that this is a film created by someone who is a director. Craig Gillespie has his his own voice, his own vision. And I know you liked I, Tanya. I liked Lars and the Real Girl. And he's he's not just a gun for hire here. He is skilled. And so I'm watching this movie and I'm thinking to myself, oh, wow, this is actually a lot more entertaining and a lot more well done than I originally anticipated. And so I kind of walked away in a, in a similar uh, fashion as you did, to use a pun, Kevin. And I found this movie to be not bad. And I, I think it actually would have even been stronger if you just, you don't even, you don't even connect it to the 101 Dalmatian Marvel Cinematic Universe, whatever. You just let it be a film, a heist film in the world of high fashion. And I think that that works pretty well. It is a little long, like you said, and there are some weaknesses. I think as we are connecting to the original story, um, but overall, I, yeah, it wasn't bad. And it's fascinating too, because another movie that was better than I originally anticipated was the first Maleficent film. And it, it had soul and it wasn't afraid to buck with tradition and to surprise us. And I think Cruella does that a bit, probably not enough. And as a result, um, it, it's probably one of the more interesting films that I've seen Disney offer in this vein uh, in, in a couple of years. Yeah, I mean, it, it's it's hard to, to... Yeah, I almost don't want to talk about this movie in terms of how it stacks up against these other... Uh, attempts by Disney to unpack the backstory of various characters like Maleficent and so forth, just because, I mean, like I said, it just doesn't, it's, it's not very interesting as a movie about Cruella de Vil, the villain from 101 Dalmatians. It's 
mostly interesting as a movie about an anti-heroine uh, who you know happens to be named Cruella and uh, is just she she is kind of pursuing her own story. The parts of this film where we're just watching her kind of you know be be a likable uh, ringleader of a group of rogues you know it, it there's there's a, a sequence in this film where it kind of lays out her plans to steal back uh the necklace that uh the baroness von helmen uh has got taken into possession that once belonged to cruella's uh mother who who dies at the beginning of the movie um and she lays out her plan similar to, you know, anyone who's seen Ocean's Eleven recognizes the scene as sort of like, okay, these are all the different moving pieces and everybody's got their own job and there are going to be, you know, uh, fake outs and double crosses and things are going to seem to be going wrong, but it ends up being kind of part of the plan in the end. And that's kind of, there's a lot of zip to these sequences that, that Craig Gillespie brings to to it that makes those sequences like that honestly a pleasure to watch the parts where we kind of have to have to sit and and sit with the film and reckon with it as something that ties into an an earlier character it falls a little bit flat for me i don't think that cruella as a character uh in the 101 dalmatians cinematic universe is really enriched by the revelation that her mom was killed by dalmatians that just kind of seems like a non sequitur and doesn't really pay off in terms of what it tells us about about this this character uh and her history it's just kind of and in the context of this particular film it's just kind of a bit of an odd detail and I think that when the film kind of tries to put those details in as Easter eggs, it's just, I I don't care. I want to watch Emma Stone be villainous and give a cackle and wear some really awesome clothes. I don't think that the film really is all that interesting when it tries to be more than that. And, you know, that's, that's maybe why... I feel like this is a film kind of divided against itself. On one hand, I, I want to like it, but it just keeps getting in its own way. Yeah, and I think, I mean, just on the surface, too, those Easter eggs and those points of connectivity aren't done all that well. So how she receives her last name, the Dalmatian backstory, uh, we we get... Emma Stone with a with a cane. It, it just it, it doesn't work at all. And those Easter eggs take me out of the story every single time. And I, this is mildly spoilery, but it's interesting where the film goes because the character doesn't make this maleficent turn where she is redeemed. But yet she, we actually at this point don't don't really see how she would get to the Cruella, Cruella Deville that we're used to in the Hundred One Dalmatians story, and so it, it's kind of in between, which could be sort of fascinating, but I'm not sure the film capitalizes on that ambi- ambiguity, and it's it's partly because it wants to tell it, it's almost caught in two directions. It wants to tell this new story, but it's also chained 
to the past, and w- which in the end weakens the overall story. Um, but if you just kind of take it at face value, is this heist film in this really fascinating world, and you get Emma Stone, and she just gets to chew up some of these fantastic scenes where she's battling. It's a battle of wills with her and the Baroness. Uh, you just you kind of have fun with it, and you just kind of go go along with with the story. I had a friend who calls it uh, Disney wears Prada, and it I, I think the Devil wears Prada is is a is a pretty good film. I think it's enjoyable. It's it's entertaining, and this is one that adds a new wrinkle to the story of you know, evil boss or mean boss, abusive boss takes advantage of the people who work for her. Uh, and instead, it creates this rivalry within that. And and so, yeah, it's a lot of fun. I think the soundtrack is pretty good. A little much at times. There's so many songs from the 60s and the 70s. And if you're looking at the $200 million budget, uh, you're thinking to yourself, probably $100 million of that just comes from the royalties alone. But I think a lot of those beats, uh, they hit pretty well. And I think some of the energy and the editing from Gillespie uh, adds just kind of a pulse to this story, which makes sense for this runway style uh, action thriller. Yeah, uh, I I think that I, I'm not fully sold on a lot of Gillespie's uh, directorial choices with this film, particularly with that soundtrack. There are just there are so many needle drops in this movie where you know we we move from one scene to another and it's like Gillespie can only think of a way to transition between sequences by you know playing a song over that transition which is you know that's a a valid way to make a transition you know it's it's a tool in the toolbox it just seems like that's kind of a tool that he keeps going back to again and again until it starts to feel a little bit a little bit monotonous, like after a while, you kind of want the film to settle down a little bit. And number one, just let us uh, enjoy the, you know, the other elements of the film without having, you know, a, a popular rock song kind of playing over the soundtrack. And also because uh, the composer for this film, Nicholas Bertel, I think in the moments where his actual score, his, his original score kind of takes over on the soundtrack, I think there's actually a lot to like about it and it has a lot of character. It just, it kind of gets lost in the shuffle uh, a little bit with some of the other things that Gillespie is doing with the soundtrack here. Yeah. I, I it, it is, it is too much and it, it, it's overbearing at times. There are some scenes where it's, you know, there are two, three songs within that scene or that montage sequence. And, and it's, it's a lot. I like the production design here. I think this sort of steampunk aesthetic within the 1960s lends itself to a number of fun possibilities, and and that that works out pretty well. And I mentioned, too, this battle of the wills. Both characters, the Baroness as well as Cruella, are attempting to outdo each other. They're putting together material for fashion shows and events, and... The Baroness is continually being thwarted by Cruella, uh, who's gaining in popularity, and you can you can see that it's fun, it's uh, mysterious, it's unique, and the editing and the rhythm I think add to that. I do want to talk a little bit about the thematic elements of the story, and so naturally you have issues like success, rivalry, vocation, revenge, 
And all of those themes are pretty straightforward. I wouldn't say that anything pops uh, other than you get your you know sort of standard trote uh, examination of these issues. And one question that I did have is because the film was caught in two directions, as I mentioned earlier, and never really giving Cruella that opportunity for possible redemption, but also she doesn't become this dog Skinner in this film. The movie examines her revenge and examines her quest for revenge, uh, but it just kind of lands there. And I was a little disappointed with the end sequence. I, I didn't think it was all that good. Um, but I was also hoping that there would be just kind of a little bit more. Uh, something that that speaks to our natural inclination to evil, and that's briefly mentioned. The temptation the uh, of uh, allure of success, the desire to compete and to defeat other individuals, and then also just how revenge kind of poisons us all. So I think there's some missed opportunities and as a result, I walked away saying, oh yeah, could have been shorter, but was a lot of fun. Uh, but that's really kind That's really kind of it. But maybe, I don't know, maybe the story, maybe the fashion, maybe all that kind of speaks for itself and you don't need all these elements. I was just looking for something a little bit more and I, I couldn't quite grab a hold of that uh, at the end of the movie. It doesn't necessarily need you know, those elements of, of moral ambiguity or, or deeper thematic uh resonance like there that's not nece- that's not necessary for a movie like this there's nothing wrong with having a, a lark with an anti-heroine that's something that you know there movies like that can be a lot of fun and it's it's it would be great to spend your time with that i think the problem is it almost seems like the movie kind of wants to take us in that direction there's a scene kind of it, it's the the big third act the big turn between the second act and the third act where uh, Cruella finds out uh, uh, you know, a dark secret about her past, it throws her for, for a loop, and she has to come to terms with it. And she, it, it seems like she's kind of caught in this place where she knows that she's almost destined to be bad. Like there, there's something in, there's a darkness in her. And uh, in a scene where she's uh, talking with her dead mother, uh, she, she kind of, gives a hint like that she she's not going to be able to overcome the darker impulses inside of her and so she's just going to embrace it and emma stone really sells that scene i think emma stone in general is just way better than she had to be for this movie she you know she she could be you know kind of do the fun villain thing and get the laugh down and that would be all that she had to do to make this movie fun but stone in that moment really does sell the internal conflict uh of a character who is caught between her her natural impulses towards uh towards doing wrong and her desire to be maybe the better version of herself possibly because that was the way her mother raised her to be and in that moment you you there's kind of that tension there but then after that, the movie kind of just goes back to her just being a fun anti-heroine that we really want to root for. And it ends with her kind of just being on top of the world. We don't really get the the hint that 
this film connects in any meaningful way with the psychopath that we see in 101 Dalmatians, which is why I bring up the point that I almost wish that this had just been a standalone original story about somebody who had a different name and had nothing to do with 101 Dalmatians. And it was just sort of an, a story about an anti-heroine who, you know, got one over on the the mean uh, fashion designer. That would be a perfectly acceptable fine movie. The fact that it seems to want to do more feels, it, it, it just feels half-baked and really not necessary for the movie to to work perfectly fine. Mm -hmm. Yeah. And I do like some of the 60s film vibes and storylines in it. Obviously, pretty it's much faster, uh, the pace and the cuts than your average 1960 film. But some of the plot devices, especially towards the end, um, definitely feels like it was pulled from, yeah, from a movie from the 1960s. And um, overall, I you know a number of things that I could say about this movie, a number of uh, negative qualities. But uh, I, I think when you come in with, with you know expectations like I did, and you enjoy it, you're like, okay, yeah, yeah, maybe this is maybe this is fascinating. So I'm I'm interested in more movies like this from Disney, uh, something that's a little bit weirder and darker than we might expect. Just wishing that it wasn't chained to this pre-existing property uh, because it could have been uh, you know could have been much better right like why can't why, why can't Disney just make a a zippy fun movie without tying it to previously existing IP they're obviously capable of it mm -hmm. they just need to do it <laughs> yeah yeah and and then I guess I guess maybe it's just well we don't know if people are gonna go see it because it's this character they don't know anything about and I don't think that's necessarily true but I don't know maybe 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 they've done some sort of research. Who knows? Listeners, that is our review of Cruella. It's currently playing in theaters and available on Disney Plus through premium access. If you've seen the movie, make sure to tweet us at cbeliefpod, at cbeliefpod, and let us know what you thought. You can also email us, seeingandbelievingcapc at gmail.com. Kevin, we've reached the end of the show. This is the point where we recommend something from the world of television and or film to our listeners. What would you like to recommend today? I was trying to think of a, a film that had kind of this outsized uh, feminine personality at, at its center, the way that, that Cruella it does and uh, has that as sort of the, the engine driving the movie forward. And I ended up settling on a film that is certainly not going to be an obscure pick. Almost everybody is going to have heard of this film before if they haven't seen it. And that would be uh, 1950s All About Eve, directed by Joseph L. Mankiewicz. And of course, this is the great Betty Davis is in the central role as this, this aging actress who uh, is still in some ways in full possession of her talents, but is beginning to feel her her star beginning to to fade a little bit. And uh, the, the titular Eve is a, a younger actress who at first is taken under Betty Davis's wing and then uh, decides to, as she grows more confident, start decides to maybe do a little bit of backstabbing. So there's that intrigue as well. It's just, it's a really interesting portrait. It's a great performance from Davis. And you watching this film, you get the sense, first of all, that 
of the character as this gigantic star who still has plenty of of incandescence left in her. And you also get a really great sense of watching the film of how Betty Davis is such a towering star with plenty of incandescence left in her. There are some line readings in All About Eve that will knock you out of your chair pretty much just by how well Davis is able to to sell it. And uh, it's a it's a great time. It's a fascinating character study of not just her, but of Eve and of some of the supporting cast as well. So very much worth your time and very much worthy of its reputation. Yeah, yeah, no, that's a that's a great pick. And I feel like I've seen that film mentioned in conjunction with this movie at some point in some review. And so yeah, that's uh that's great. Well, Kevin, we're on this roll, at least I am. Movies that I enjoyed that I didn't think I would enjoy. And this last weekend, I had a chance to watch something I didn't expect to watch, and it's the Friends Reunion movie, film, documentary, whatever you want to call it. And I've never really watched Friends. I've seen episodes here and there, but Priscilla turned it on. And I found this to be pretty fascinating. And I think the reason I found it fascinating is because Friends is just this its this cultural icon, especially for, for people my age. This was the show. And as I got into college, of course, the show became The Office. But if I'm thinking of, you know, junior high, high school, like it, even before that, this is, this is Friends. Friends is the show. And it defined style and comedy and everything for a lot of people in junior high and in high school. And so watching this documentary where the characters just, the actors, they come together and part of it is them talking backstage Part of it is them walking a recreated version of the friend set. Another part is before a live audience. And they're just kind of telling stories and reminiscing about the show. They even do a couple of read-throughs, table read-throughs of some really important scenes or very iconic scenes. But I think the reason I liked it is because throughout this entire ordeal, we learn that these characters, these actors – they they got close as they were shooting the television show and they left and ever since they they left there was only there's only been one time other than the reunion where they've all kind of gotten together and it it just kind of reminded me of of life and how seasons change uh you hang out with individuals a lot for you know a specific amount of time and then that just might not ever come again. It's it's really kind of fascinating. So, you know, some of the inside jokes and appearances by famous individuals or, you know, these these characters in, in the show, you know, that was fine. But just seeing individuals who cared about each other and they they just that season changed for them. They stopped making the show, they moved on and and their lives since then. It, I just I kind of found it fascinating. So yeah, it's playing or streaming on uh, HBO Max. It's Friends, The Reunion, and of course, directed by Ben Winston. Huh. Yeah, I you know, I, I feel a little bit like a, a person out of step with my generation because I have literally not seen more than five consecutive minutes of the Friends sitcom. I just, it just wasn't something that I really ever got into. And so it, it's, its status as this 
pop culture phenomenon is probably a little bit lost in me. I will say that it took me a while to get used to the fact that especially David Schwimmer and Jennifer Aniston are really talented actors in their own right. And, Mm -hmm. and for a long time, I just thought of them as, you know, they're, they're just sitcom actors and, I didn't come around on them until until much much later when Friends was off off the air. So in a way, I kind of resent the TV show Friends for for doing that. Although really, <laughs> it was it was all it was all my fault. It was you know the thing that I have to repent in dust and ashes for. But mm-hmm. sounds like a, an interesting uh, choice that Friends reunion for for those who were into that show when it when it was on the air. Yeah, yeah, really kind of just fascinating to think of of how television shows can define our lives in many ways. And I think for a lot of people now, it like it really is the office. I, people talk about the office and I don't, I don't know what television show has captured the imagination for so many people like the office since then. And before that friends, I'm not sure what that is now. Is there a show like that now? I don't know, but it's fascinating to just see those shows, whether you like them or not as these, as these pop cultural icons and influencers and how they how they change and impact the world around them. And so that was kind of fascinating to, to see that. Well, listeners, that is our show, episode 292. If you have a chance, hop on over to our Patreon page, patreon.com forward slash seeing underscore believing underscore podcast. And Kevin, I know it's the end of the show. We've got a lot of donation levels on our Patreon page. And one of our favorites, you get some good stuff, is the what can you buy for $5 level. And before we close this out, would you mind telling our listeners what they could buy for five bucks? Uh, $5 would uh, buy you a special little uh, Velcro eyes that you can put on any uh, photographs or paintings in your home. So if the if the eyes aren't following you around the room, like, you know, in a sco- like in a Scooby-Doo episode or something, and you really miss that sort of experience in your wall decorations, five bucks would get you some attachments that would recreate that effect for you. Oh, yeah. No, I like I like that. I think that's well worth the well worth the investment. Um, <laughs> well worth the investment. Listeners, hop on our to patreon.com forward slash seeing underscore believing underscore podcast. For now, I want to thank you for listening to this week's episode. It's brought to you by Christinpopculture.com. Our producer is Jonathan Clausen, who every week helps us to search for the sacred on screen. I'm Wade Bearden, my co-host is Kevin McLenathan, and until next time, this is Seeing and Believing. We'll see you later. You have been listening to Seeing and Believing, an official production of the Christ and Pop Culture Podcast Network. Please rate and review the show in iTunes, and check out our other shows at christandpopculture.com slash network. Theme music by Alexander Osborne and Lindsay Miz, used under Creative Commons License 3.0. This episode was brought to you in part by the Areopagus Podcast, two clergy of different traditions, Father Andrew Stephen Damick 
and Michael Landsman discuss encounters of historic Christianity with other religious traditions. How do we engage with those who believe differently? Listen wherever you get your podcasts.